Are we ready as a society to discuss what the next steps are if we find life beyond Earth? Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Dick, and he's an astronomer, an author, and a historian of science, most noted for his work in the field of astrobiology. Stephen also has served as chief historian for NASA, and he's been the Bloomberg Chair at the Library of Congress in Astrobiology. Today, we're going to talk about the societal benefits, or not, about the discovery of life beyond Earth if and when that happens. It's all about changing our worldview. So Stephen, welcome to Gravity Assist. Glad to be here, Jim. Well, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you've been the NASA chief historian, and I'm sure many of our listeners don't know that NASA even has a history office. So what do historians at NASA really do? Ah, we do a lot of different things. Uh, we uh, do a lot of book projects. Uh, on various aspects of NASA history. Uh, we do a lot of conferences uh, on various aspects, and uh, we do special projects that the administrator wants us to do, and we do our own uh, research also. So it's a, it's a very full job. We have a big archives uh, at NASA headquarters and uh, several archivists, so people are always calling in and asking questions about NASA history, whether it's the media or, uh, or other people. There's been a historian at NASA from the very beginning. Uh, so uh, NASA realized that it was going to make history, and it certainly has, and will continue to make history. Well, I see you've got the perfect two loves, and that is science and history. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really caught up in history. And when right. I think back about that early days of what we call the birth of astrobiology, of course, the 1996 announcement from the Allen Hills meteorite really stirred up a lot of controversy. Can you give us a little background on what that was all about? Well, I write about that in, in my book. Uh, the uh, People are surprised that there are actually Mars rocks on the Earth. Uh, they do, uh, you know, the Earth intercepts rocks that have been spewed off of Mars, and usually they're found in the Antarctic. And uh, the uh, Allen Hills, what's called the Allen Hills 84001, uh, meteorite uh, was found and uh, recognized as a Martian meteorite. Scientists studied it very carefully, especially down at Johnson Space Center. And the, uh, the, the, after three years of that kind of work, they made the uh, announcement that they thought that there might be nanofossils, extremely small fossilized life uh, in, that, uh, in that Mars rock. Uh, so they made the announcement. I was on the beach. <laughs> and, and my nephew came out and said they found life on Mars, and I said no. Uh, but uh, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of uh, the, the controversy, and it was a very interesting uh, press conference that was held uh, at NASA headquarters uh, with uh, uh, the, the people who were making the claim, but also some skeptics. I use it as a kind of a analogy uh, to what might happen if we find uh, extraterrestrial life, you know, in the future. Uh, you saw the, uh, you know, the announcement and all the controversy uh, that went on for weeks and months. And 
and years even, and you had congressional hearings and you had symposia about this. And uh, I myself was involved in one really interesting meeting with Vice President Gore, who uh, called, called a meeting to talk about the implications if this were true. Um, and this was a small meeting with about 20 people. The NASA administrator, Dan Golden, was there and the director of Office of Management Budget uh, and, and other people. And Gore, uh, Stephen Jay Gould was there and uh, Lynn Margulis and some of the scientists who had made the announcement. Uh, Bill Moyers was there. Some theologians were there. So it was a real uh, chance to talk about the implications. And this went on for two or three hours, uh, going around the table and talking about what the implications might be. So that's also the kind of thing that will happen in the future, I think, at, at very high levels where we're trying to figure out what the impact is going to be. As you said, uh, Mars meteorites do fall on the Earth. And we go to the Antarctic because blinding white sheets of ice are there. And if you see these dark spots, then they had to come from somewhere. And that's typically from above. And at, right. the time, at the time the Allen Hills meteorite was found, we only had in our collection 11 Mars meteorites that we could identify. Today, we have about 170. Ah. So, so indeed, we still have been collecting them, and it's really been a wonderful cache. In the case of Allen Hill's meteorite, and looking at what looked like fossilized microbes, how did that resolve itself? And how did we determine that perhaps that wasn't the case? Well, it's a fascinating problem, both scientifically and philosophically, because you had three or four independent lines of evidence uh, in that, uh, you know, leading to that conclusion that it might be uh, uh, fossil life. And the um, some people said, well, if you have three or four weak lines of evidence, it makes a strong argument. And other people said, no, four weak arguments don't make a strong argument. <laughs> so they went back and forth over that. But in the end, it was just, uh, you know, some of those lines of evidence uh, just didn't didn't pan out. And uh, it goes back to, I think, what, something that Carl Sagan said, where extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right. And the evidence, there was evidence, but it just wasn't extraordinary enough to make that claim, which is certainly an extraordinary claim. It's possible things will change. You remember the Viking uh, experiments uh, it showed that there were no um, organic molecules parts per billion on the surface of Mars. Uh, and so people concluded, well, if there's no organic molecules, you can't have life. Um, now they're th thinking a little differently about it because of <laughs> things called chlorates and, and all kinds of other things that maybe maybe they did find life or, or maybe they didn't do the right experiments. You know, I guess this back to the, to the definition of life. Maybe they didn't do the right experiments. And so that's uh, still open in the eyes of some people. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Viking just scratched the surface in one location. That's exactly right. So, and, and Mars is huge with a yeah. very complex geological history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're finding by going to certain places uh, like what uh, Perseverance is going to do, uh, land in an ancient delta where water spewed into the ancient ocean, leaving material from hundreds of miles Wow, what, what are we going to find in those rocks? And we're going to bring them back. Yeah, I can hardly wait for the results. <laughs> Me too. You've written about the history of the way people think about life beyond Earth also. And so are these all key moments that change the way people thought about the possibility of, of life beyond Earth? Or are there some other really important milestones in that area? 
Well, there have been at least a half a dozen uh, cases where, uh, you know, throughout history where people have thought that they might have discovered extraterrestrial life. Uh, you can go all the way back to Percival Lowell. Or you could go even further back than that to Kepler and Galileo. Galileo, you know, in 1610, pointing his telescope to the moon, saw what looked like a perfectly round crater. And Kepler, who was a very imaginative kind of guy, said, this must be artificial, built by the inhabitants of the moon. <laughs> and then, of course, Percival Lowell of the late 19th century uh, had this idea, which, based on observation, although very controversial observations, that there might be canals on Mars, uh, and that these were the artifacts of a dying planet that the inhabitants were building uh, uh, canals and, and trying to get the water to where they where they needed it to be, uh, but especially with the uh, especially with the uh, Mars rock, uh, you started to see, um, you know, what the implications might be. It wasn't just not just the scientific facts, but the newspapers at the time were filled with questions about what does this mean? You know, does this mean that there might be life all throughout the universe, and what would that mean for theology and philosophy and all kinds of uh, different areas. So the idea of uh, the impact of astrobiology on society also really picked up with this uh, discovery of, of the Mars rock, even though in the end, the consensus now, I think, is that those are not uh, nanofossils. They're probably, uh, you know, not biogenic, but it certainly uh, precipitated a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, areas in, in what we now know as astrobiology. Yeah, I really love that history part of it. In fact, um, as you mentioned, Percival Lowell really looking at Mars, thinking that there were canals with water being moved on this, what may be a drier planet than, than Earth, of course, mm -hmm. really spurred the imagination. And a few years after he his first book came out called The uh, Abode of Life on Mars or something on that order, um, H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds. That's so, right. And he so knew about Percival Lowell. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. so, you know, our science affects our culture. Just like in science fiction, we, we like to think of, of things that, that we write about, about the future and how we might be able to make things happen. So it works both ways. That's right. I was a big science fiction fan when I was a youngster. So I think that when I was at NASA, I found that when I asked a lot of the scientists, they, many of them were influenced by science fiction. And people, of course, like Carl yeah. Sagan was so... Uh, uh, that's right. It really fires the imagination to go out there and, and really see what you can find. Well, you've said that intelligence is key to cultural evolution. What do you mean by that? What is the intelligence principle? Well, there's this, uh, the Drake equation. I think a lot of people know about the Drake equation, which is uh, uh, Frank Drake in uh, 1960, you know, was searching for, made the first search for signals from, uh, uh, from an ex possible extraterrestrial intelligence and came up with the Drake equation, which was just the number of technological communicative uh, civilizations in our galaxy. And it has all these factors in. And one of them has to do with a fraction of um, planets that might have intelligence on. The intelligence principle, to get to your question, is the idea that any society, any civilization that can improve its intelligence will improve its intelligence. Um, and so my claim is that extraterrestrials out there are highly likely to be post-biological, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, because you're, you know, the brains inside of our heads are limited, and with artificial intelligence, you can do, uh, you can do a lot more, and that would affect your study search. If you're looking for post-biologicals, 
rather than uh, biologicals like us. They're not going to be like us. <laughs> wow, wow. So that really elevates you know, the possibilities of different kinds of life. So let's say if we find life beyond Earth, what do you think will be the reaction by the public and, and what will happen next? Well, I wrote a whole book about that, so it's hard for me to condense it all. But uh, uh, I, I usually put it in terms of uh, worldviews. I think our cosmological worldview would change, our philosophical and theological worldviews would change, and our cultural worldviews would change. From, by cosmological, I mean that we will, we will know that we no longer live in a physical universe, entirely physical universe, where we are the only kind of freak biology, the freak intelligence, that we live in what I call a biological universe. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that, that makes a big difference for, for our future, our sort of human destiny, if you have a biological universe where we have to interact with intelligence. So there's the cosmological aspect. Uh, then there's the philosophical and theological aspect. If we engage with extraterrestrials, we will find out something about our own knowledge. Do they know the same things that we know? Do they see the universe the same way that we do? Do we have objective knowledge? Would our knowledge be the same as their knowledge? Uh, so that's a huge question in philosophy. And when you go to uh, theology, uh, people have been arguing about this now for oh, 500 years since Copernicus. Uh, but in the last uh, few decades, it's really, uh, it's really picked up as uh, the possibility of life has, has increased, uh, what the theological implications might be. And of course, there are all kinds of uh, threads to that, and, and it depends on which theology you're talking about. And every religion has its own questions that will arise uh, sure. in that case. Yeah. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, I was at a meeting, it turned out it was in Europe, and a reporter uh, asked me absolutely out of the blue, if we discovered life, is society ready for it? And it took me back and I said, no, I don't think so. And that was the hot, that, that pretty much got the headlines everywhere. I was getting emails from all over the place, people saying, of course we're ready to, you know, to find life beyond <laughs> Earth. What, what, what was I thinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're ready, but that's- I don't think we're ready either. That's uh, one of the reasons that I think we need to prepare for discovery because you mm -hmm. can have a, a better outcome if you're, if you're prepared. Right. Uh, one of the points I like to make is it very much depends on what the discovery scenario is. You know, it's almost, it's almost meaningless to say, what's the impact of discovering life? Are you talking about microbial life or yeah. intelligent life or intelligent life with a signal or with a signal that's deciphered? And what do they say? Those are all different scenarios that you have yeah. to consider uh, when you talk about what's the reaction going to be. Well, you know, you've written also about ethical issues involving uh, the discovery of extraterrestrial life. What kind of ethical questions should we be asking each other? Well, that's, uh, that spreads all the way from uh, the, the spectrum of uh, microbes to intelligence. Uh, if you find microbes on Mars, there's immediately an ethical question. Is Mars for the Martians, even though they're just microbes? Right. Uh, should we interfere? Uh, and you have scientists and ethicists on both sides of that question. And then, of course, when you get to intelligence, things are really multiplied because you may have to actually interact with that intelligence. And, um, and uh, you know, it depends on what your theory of moral status is. Uh, we have a, you know, enough trouble on the earth with, you know, in terms of uh, dealing with animals and that sort of thing. But the, uh, the theory of moral status, if you have an anthropocentric theory of moral status, that's probably not 
what you want to do if you're talking about extraterrestrials, because everything would be focused on what's best for us, uh, not what's best for, for them, and, and vice versa. Who knows what their ethics would be? And, uh, you know, if you, if you get a, 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 an example of some ethical questions, if you get a SETI signal, who answers? If, it's, if there's a, a decipherment, who answers? Uh, and another question is, there's this thing called METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, where we actually send signals ourselves in a more proactive way. Should people be doing that? Uh, and what should we be saying? And who speaks for Earth? All those kinds of uh, ethical questions. Yeah, they're ver very important. And I think that's why we need to be talking about them now and not just when it happens. Wow, a lot to consider. Well, Stephen, you know, we're making all kinds of progress. You know, who knows what would happen? Maybe somebody tomorrow will announce we have found life. What would be the first thing you would do? I would say, yay. I've spent <laughs> a lot of my career on writing the history of this debate and uh, writing about what the impact might be. Uh, you know, you would have to go through several stages, uh, follow the evidence and uh, have follow-up research. We would live in a much more fascinating universe if we have other intelligence out there. I mean, it's still possible that we are, you know, the only uh, intelligence in the universe, but it seems very unlikely to me. And so um, uh, I think that uh, uh, that's one of the great unsolved questions in the, in the history of science, maybe the greatest unsolved question, if you look at the very broad uh, point of view. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. You know, it's that level of confidence that the whole scientific community's got to get there. Right. And that takes time. No matter how you present the evidence and what evidence you have available, it has to be interrogated. It has to hold up the scientific scrutiny. And that's what makes it very fascinating. Stephen, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. <laughs> so Stephen, what was your gravity assist? <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a farm boy from Southern Indiana. So we had dark skies on that farm. And all you had to do is look up and see all those stars and wonder. Wow. I remember asking how many are there and what, what are they like, you know, and are there planets around those and that sort of thing. And of course, I grew up during the time of the early space age, you know, when uh, Alan Shepard and John Glenn, and I followed that all very closely. And uh, I also was in contact with NASA already about, uh, and NASA used to put out something called NASA Facts. Uh, and I always waited for this big brown uh, envelope to come with NASA facts about various things. Uh, and so I was very much, you know, I think the initial spark was that dark night sky, but then it was the space program itself and these NASA facts that kept coming in <laughs> from, from uh, NASA headquarters and firing my imagination even more. Wow. Uh, you know, that beckons back to also why you're, you're very much into history because Indeed, with clear skies at night, our ancient ancestors looked and marveled at the sky and looked at the wonders. Even the Greeks looking at things that wonder called planets, you know, and so mm -hmm. indeed, uh, that's a true inspiration. Uh, let me say one more thing, and that is that uh, when I was getting my bachelor's degree in astronomy, uh, I was at uh, Indiana University. Uh, which is one of the few places that also has a history and philosophy of science department. 
And so I would take courses over there because I always wondered, how do we get to know what we know when I'm learning about this astronomy stuff? And so I actually then, after I got my bachelor's in astrophysics, went to get my PhD in history and philosophy of science. And the interesting thing is that I uh, suggested doing a dissertation on the history of the extraterrestrial life debate. And they said, well, there's two problems with that in a history of science department. First of all, it has no history worth writing about, and it's not science. <laughs> this was, wow. well, this was back when, when exobiology was still somewhat of a, uh, you know, not, not so reputable uh, uh, sort of taboo subject. So to do the history of something like that was considered very, uh, you know, f f sort of far out. But I, I actually stuck with it. I, I had to switch advisors to do that. But uh, I did a dissertation on the early history of the extraterrestrial life debate from Democritus mm. all the way up to Kant. Wow. And, yeah. And then uh, and, and that came out uh, as a book by Cambridge University Press way back in uh, the early 1980s. Uh, and then somebody else picked up there and went up to Percival Lowell. And then I wrote the 20th century history with a book called The Biological Universe. Uh, so uh, it turned out to be a pretty good, I think, dissertation. And I always tell graduate students to stick to your guns. Don't let your dissertation advisor try to change your subject. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me and discussing this fascinating topic. It's been a lot of fun, Jim. Thanks. It's good to see you again. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.